Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 26th of May. I'm Tom Tilley, and on today's briefing, why losing your religion is harder than it looks. The majority of those so-called Catholics actually are no longer Catholics. We will describe ourselves as, oh, I was a Catholic, oh, I was brought up Catholic, oh, I'm an ex-Catholic, I'm an angry Catholic. Yeah, it's a fascinating story where Monica Ducks realises how much power Catholicism still had over her even years or, or decades after she left. That interview in just a moment. First, Annika Smethurst is here from a very nervous Melbourne. Yes, Tom, Victorian health authorities are racing to track down anyone who may have come into contact with a footy fan who attended the MCG on Sunday as contact tracers race against the clock to try and prevent another lockdown. Yeah, it's a nervous situation. New restrictions were introduced in Melbourne yesterday, including mandatory face masks inside, as well as a cap on social gatherings. This is about giving our contact tracers the time that they need that's acting Premier James Molino. I hope he's right. The state's health department tweeted last night that one of a number of the new cases attended the football on Sunday afternoon, a match between Collingwood and Port Adelaide at the MCG. The race is now on to track down other cases to avoid yet another citywide lockdown. So we're basically back in a situation where the whole of Melbourne is glued to their phones and their TVs waiting for the news. Yeah, I don't know how many people will actually go into the office today, given those new mask rules. And there is a little bit of a feeling in the air that lockdown is coming. So I think there'll be a few people working from home today. Yeah, I guess by the time you're listening to this, that news may have come. Um, I think everyone's expecting an announcement early today on whether they're going into another lockdown, which is very grim. There's been a wave of sexual assault allegations in the wake of the Brittany Higgins revelation. 40 reports have been received by the AFP since the 24th of February relating to 19 different allegations. That was AFP Commissioner Rhys Kershaw in Senate Estimates yesterday revealing the number of allegations that have surfaced against federal MPs and their staff since former staffer Brittany Higgins went public with her allegations three months ago. The Commissioner also revealed a brief of evidence from Ms Higgins' case will be passed to ACT prosecutors in coming weeks. Appearing at the same committee, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet Secretary Phil Gaitchens was criticised by Labor senators over his handling of a report into when the Prime Minister's office knew about the allegations. Uh, He said the report would be finalised within weeks, although we don't know whether it will be made public. Labor senators Penny Wong and Katie Gallagher clashed with Mr Gaitchens over the report and when it will be released, saying the process has been too secretive. Also in Parliament yesterday, the Prime Minister tabled one of the other reports relating to the Brittany Higgins story. Uh, This investigation cleared the Prime Minister's staff of briefing the media against Ms Higgins' partner in the days after she made her allegation public. In other very interesting news around sexual assault, a new affirmative consent law was passed in New South Wales that Saxon Mullins has been advocating for. She went through two sexual assault trials over an alleged assault in a King's Cross laneway. Honestly, still in a bit of shock. I'm really, really surprised, but but really grateful to see that we've legislated for affirmative consent. So these new affirmative consent laws mean that someone needs to take steps with words or actions to ascertain consent from their sexual partner. So essentially, an accused would not be deemed to have received consent to a sexual activity until the other party says or does something to communicate their consent. Uh, And sometimes victims freeze and can't say no, and this law is designed to take that into account. 
Queenslanders could face more blackouts today after more than 400,000 were left without power after a series of fires at a power station yesterday. That is a huge amount of people in Queensland, 400,000. Uh, multiple investigations are underway into the series of explosions which rocked the state's second biggest power plant, the Clyde Power Plant near Biloela, yesterday afternoon. As authorities assess the damage, a spokesperson for provider Energex said demand would be monitored closely today and power may be cut off again in order to protect the network. Yeah, these outages caused traffic chaos in Brisbane yesterday as traffic lights went out and people had to be evacuated from shopping centres. So let's hope they get under control today. The Greens have called for a federal compensation scheme for the survivors of the stolen generation ahead of National Sorry Day today. So the Greens plan would compensate each stolen generation survivor with a $200,000 lump sum payment as well as a one-off payment of $7,000 to cover funeral expenses. Announcing the plan yesterday, Green Senator Lydia Thorpe said people were dying waiting for justice and said the government could afford to spend some money to support those affected. The government can find the money to build new power stations and, and give to their mates. We're talking about not much money here in the scheme of things and the outcome would be peace and healing for so many So it is National Sorry Day today, uh, and basically it's designed to acknowledge the continued effect of the removal of First Nations people from their communities and culture, and it's followed by National Reconciliation Week. And marches are being held across the United States this morning as thousands of people mark the first anniversary of the death of George Floyd. All right, Annika Smethurst, we'll catch you next week. In just a moment, a very interesting interview with a lapsed Catholic. I was so Catholic. I was like the perfect Catholic girl. I wanted to be a nun when I was 12, but my most Catholic moment probably was playing Jesus in the um, the Easter Passion Play when I was in grade five, which was a, a year before you were meant to play Jesus, which made me feel even more like I was the chosen Catholic. <laughs> so I did all the rituals, all the ceremonies. I used to pray. I gave up Tim Tams for Lent. I was really horrified by people who weren't Catholic because I thought they were all going to hell. Up until my mid-teens, I was extremely devout and possibly very annoying. This is Monica Ducks, who's written a book called Lapsed. Now, it's quite a relevant book in today's world because Catholicism in Australia has been in slow decline over the last 50 years. But at 22% of all Australians, it's still the biggest single religion and it's holding its ground much better than the Anglican Church. Now, Monica's story is partly about growing up Catholic, but it's more about why it still has such a hold over people, even after they think they've left it behind. I gave up believing in my late teens, didn't mm. believe in God. And, you know, quite it's radically. Yes. Yeah, quite radically. I kind of rejected religion. I dressed as a condom at school. I did lots of, at the time, which seemed really out there things and now just look a bit silly. But I, I really rejected the church as most. A lot of people brought up in religion are you're more likely to reject religion in your adolescence. And so I did, I left it all behind. But for decades afterwards, I still felt really Catholic. And it wasn't just me. Whereas as a kid, I felt that I was probably the best Catholic. Afterwards, when I left it all behind, I felt like there were just so many people like me. And I had this new community of 
former Catholics, of lapsed Catholics, of ex-Catholics, of, of kids who'd gone through Catholic school, Catholic parents, Catholic everything, given it all up, and yet still felt that there was something about us. And the Vatican statistics for Catholics in the world, they have this very rough statistic, and it's something like 1.3 billion people in the world are Catholic. And they actually base that statistic on a rough estimate of baptisms. And when I read that statistic, I thought, well, that's not true, because if you look at any surveys today and censuses and, Mm. you know, demographics, you will see that the majority of those so-called Catholics actually are no longer Catholics. But the fact that we still even feel that we will describe ourselves as, oh, I was a Catholic, oh, I was brought up Catholic, oh, I'm an ex-Catholic, I'm an angry Catholic, I found really intriguing. And and what that was, well, why is that? Because not all religions are as hard to, to shake off, mm. and, and not all Christian religions particularly. But for Catholicism, I think it was a lot about the ritual, the stories and the, the saints and the repetition of a lot of our behaviour and a lot of the, the sense, I think, that Catholicism is very intimate and it really gets under your skin. And then there was another thing, of course, which became more and more evident in the last decade and a half for all Catholics, whether they practice or don't or believe or don't, and that was the church abuse. And this was the thing that now I could see was uniting all of us. And so all those people I knew for decades who'd been brought up Catholic and no longer believed but still felt some connection, we were all suddenly aware that the church of our childhood had also committed these atrocities. And what do we do with that? What do we do with our identity? Yeah. I guess that's especially intense question when you're raising children of your own and, and you're raising your children in a, in a way that's very different to the way you were raised. You're not raising them as Catholics, but actually it was your six-year-old daughter on a trip to Rome that really brought this all to a head for you. Yeah, so I was never going to bring my children up religious because I didn't believe. But a lot of, you know, former Catholics still baptise their kids and send them to Catholics, or even if they don't believe. So, there's, you know, it's it's quite common, I think, to do that. But for me, I thought, no, no religion. I talked about religion with my kids quite a bit. You know, we would say, oh, grandma believes. But, mm. you know, when we go and visit grandma, we, we, we're respectful and other people have lots of different beliefs, but that's not our family. Oh, just speaking and of I went, that, I was interested in that part of your book where your young daughter asked you about what happens when we die. And, and it, it sounded like you're, you wanted to give a nice, simple answer that we're all going to heaven, but you, you knew that truthfully you didn't believe that anymore. Yeah, and that was really hard. I think, I mean, if you've brought up religious, mm. it's, 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 it, you have an answer. I mean, for what the merits of religion aside, like you, you're being told that, oh, well, when you die, it's all good. You go somewhere else. It's all good. Yeah. Don't worry. You know, grandma dies. Oh, look, it's a bit sad, but you'll see her again someday. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, and particularly for children. And so my daughter at the age of six decided that she wanted religion, she, but it was that she wanted also to be Catholic. And so we were in Rome and she, we were in this beautiful church. I, I was standing over sarcophagus and I found her praying and she'd never seen me pray. Um, I don't think she'd seen anyone really pray except on television. And th- there was this big declaration of, I want to be baptised. I want to be Catholic. I believe, I, you know, and I was so con- confronted by that and so conflicted. And it took me a while to, th- to realise that it in in part, it simply came down for her as I want something bigger to believe in. You know, this story you're giving me that, well, who knows what happens after you die 
is not enough and it wasn't enough for her and that's very understandable but for me the conflict was but you can't be Catholic because I have a lot of mixed feelings about the church I have a lot of unresolved feelings about the church and I don't want to pass on that legacy yeah. to you and that, that came out straight away for you because your husband was like oh it's all cool it's kind of funny we're in Rome she's pretending to be a Catholic it's all make-believe but when she went back to the Airbnb and and set up a fake altar in in her bedroom <laughs> your your discomfort grew and grew and grew Oh, did and I nearly baptised her in the bath. Um, she's not aware of this. She hasn't read the book yet, so one day she will know this. But so she was saying to me, "Oh, my!" Because her brother said to her, "Well, you can't be Catholic because you have to have water thrown on you." Like that was the extent of his um, his understanding of how these things worked. And so she was like, "I want the water thrown me on me. I want to get baptised." And and I thought, you know, in in Catholic canon law, people can baptise other Catholics. So I could I could baptise anyone now, even today, Tom, if you're in front of me and hadn't been baptised, I could I could baptise you. We all no have way. this power. And I knew this. And so I thought, well, what about well, she's in the bath? I'm, I was bathing her and I thought, oh, I could just throw some water on her, mumble the words. She's been baptised. And maybe, and this was the other thing, it was a bit like maybe if it is true, maybe if it's a one in a million long shot that it's all true, at least she'll get to heaven because I've been baptised, my husband's been baptised. Then I was like, oh, but my son hasn't been baptised. Do I have to do him? So, yeah, it, it set me on a bit of a, a wild journey of thinking, why does this matter so much to me? Why do I feel so connected to it and so shadowed by it um, and by this religion and so angry but, you know, also so warm and nostalgic about some of it? Yeah, she was the trigger for that. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, without giving away the whole ending of the book, where do you land with this stuff? I mean, as you mentioned, the horrific stories of sexual abuse made people very aware but also embarrassed of their connection with the Catholic Church, no matter how tenuous that connection was at that point of their lives. But as you said, your daughter raised questions. You also reconnected with some of your former Catholic friends in that broader community. So did you, in the end, move closer to your Catholicism or separate yourself further from it? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing the book and I did a tremendous amount of research about the history of Catholicism and Christianity and belief and all of that, because I thought I really need to understand this if I'm going to reject it. I thought maybe I would come back to it a little bit, but it really did push me further away, particularly the abuse stuff and looking at the institution and, and really understanding how church abuse took place, people in my own family who had been abused and speaking to them and, and looking at stories of those who've died, it did push me away. But I think what my biggest sort of revelation by finishing the book was instead of seeing the rejection of the church as always just being a rejection for me, it, it felt very much like I made a positive choice and that a lot of people like me, and there are so many people like me who are still conflicted about the church that we have to think about it. I guess that was what I came around to realising, that we do feel a lot of conflict with the church and we have very mixed feelings about our childhoods. And it's really worth working out what we do with that. So whether that means we continue participating and we do continue to baptise our children, do all those things, that's fine. But I think we all need to think about that relationship. And so really, even though it pushed me further away from the church, it also made me feel as if the sense that I'd always rejected it it was like, no, I'm actually embracing a new and positive way in terms of 
choosing not to participate in this religion and choosing to say, well, that's it for me. That's it for mm. me and I'm not, I'm not going to throw that water at my daughter in the bath. <laughs> <laughs> but also understanding yourself better, right, not just the church because um, I've been through a similar process writing my own book about stepping away from a Pentecostal upbringing, which is quite different in an interesting way from Catholicism. But part of that journey for me has been picking apart some of my own assumptions and superstitions and ways of thinking that I didn't realize were so shaped by the church. One of them, for example, is that when I get to big decisions in life, I, I can really catastrophize them, that if I make the wrong choice here, that will lead to another choice, this sort of slippery slope logic. Yeah. I realise where that comes from. I realise, you know. Yeah, and there's, there's, yeah. there's a lot of good science about that. You know, a lot of brain science now looks at the impact, particularly on children, of things like prayer and the way that we pray and ritual. And I think Pentecostal church and a, and a Catholic church and a lot of different Christian denominations that are sort of not the norm do instill in children a little bit of a sense of difference. And I think that also all those quirks and foibles that you carry with you into adulthood you don't realise where they always come from, but you sort of know. I mean, I wonder if you, that sense you have of catastrophizing, whether there's always a little sense of, well, that's got something to do with that religion, but I'm not quite sure why. And and that was partly what my book was about, was saying, well, all these weird things that define what it is to be a Catholic, like our yeah, guilt and our shame and our my urge to confess. I have this terrible urge to give money away. You know, I was able to actually map that out and go, okay, that is something Catholic. And it's always going to be with me. But it doesn't have to be seen as a negative thing anymore, but it, it can kind of stop with me, at least with my children, yeah. Okay, so finally, back to the, the core question, which we touched on a little bit, but I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on why extricating from being a Catholic is different to other religions. Is it partly because Catholicism really was at the core, the mainstream of a big part of our society for so long? Is it that simple? Does it go back to the actual nature of the religion and, and the detail of its rules and its stories, or is it something else completely? Look, I think it's many things, and I think each religion has its own specifics that, that, that tie you to, to something. I think Catholicism is a very interesting religion because it does have these epic stories. It has saints that a lot of Protestant religions just threw out in the Reformation. So we have a lot, there's a lot of colour to Catholic stories. There's a lot of ritual in Catholicism that a lot of other denominations don't have. And that repetition and going to mass. And there's also, I think Catholicism is can be very total if you embrace it. And it really gets under your skin. There's a lot of, a sense of what your desires are. I mean, you have a Catholic institution that's still in their canon law has basically rules saying you should not masturbate, you should <laughs> not um, use contraception. You know, they use words like homosexual acts are intrinsically, you know, evil. Yeah. So all of these ideas about sex and sexuality and the body, as well as the stories that go with it and this, this grandeur, I think as a child, it really stays with you because once again, it's like you're not just dealing with, well, mum and dad really love this footy team and <laughs> they treat it like a religion and we go every week. You're actually dealing with the the entire meaning of your existence and that's really profound. And so then to become an adult and say, well, I don't believe any of it anymore, of course, it's just simply not enough. It just yeah. doesn't – you can't just shake it off. It's just not and that easy, is it? It's just not that easy and it, it never – you can never shake it off. So that was Monica Ducks, author of the book Lapsed. Losing your religion is harder than it looks. A very interesting read. It's out now. Get it at all bookstores. 
Tomorrow on The Briefing, the chaos and the environmental questions around Bitcoin. Listener.